Shifu Shangren, Venerable Master, Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. This is Saturday night, December 15th. We're here in Berkeley, California, and we're going to be looking into the fourth ground of the Ten Grounds chapter of the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra. And if you have a text, uh, you can put your finger between the pages six and seven and hold that spot because we're going to first recite the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, which is on the cover of your text, to invoke their spiritual presence. So let's do that. Page six and seven. And you should be able to download the text from berkeleymonastery.org. Ah, next week, next week. This week, you'll have to take it on faith. But we'll give you a hint as we go. We'll go slowly so you can follow along. Okay, on page six we are on line one, two, three, four, five. Guanju Hong Shang We're going to first recite the text in Chinese and then go across into the English. Okay, here we go. Guan Zhu Hang. Sheng Mie Gu. Guan Zhu Fa Zi Xing. 
生故，观世间，成坏故，观音业，有生故，观生死，涅盘故。观众生，国土业故；观前继后继故；观无所有尽故。是谓实。All right. We have a bodhisattva, an awakened being, who is.、Uh, Practicing vigor, he is being strong. This is the the perfection of strength. Virya in Sanskrit. Virya is the same root in English that became the word viral, meaning strong and potent. So this is the Bodhisattva's perfection of strength and vigor. He, she is able to work hard and not stop. Vigor, as they say, vigorous in body, vigorous in mind. Strong mind as well, and in many cases, the mind strength is can surpass the body strength. So, that's what's that's the basic theme of this of this ground, which corresponds to the paramita as well, the the perfection. And the bodhisattva is、uh, contemplating. Last week we had ten contemplations that allowed him to come into the area, the realm of this this kind of learning. Because the the ten grounds are learning; it's it's education. Ten things to learn. There, it's not one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's ten steps, but each step has a breadth. So there's as you、uh, go through each of the ten grounds, there. Patterns that repeat, and they're progressive. They build on each other, but there, some are horizontally.、Uh, there's more to learn. Things connect to other things, and those things connect to other things. And so, as the bodhisattva, and then we, by by extension, as we learn these、uh, methods, these techniques, these perspectives,、um, we are. Developing,、um, it's it's holistic. We develop kind of in three D. We go deeper. We go bigger. We go taller. We go wider. So here's the bodhisattva in that process, and he is, she is contemplating. Contemplating is looking with the mind. Right? We look with our eyes. We see things. We identify them. We know that we don't know them. Something new to us. And the the eye is、uh, the receptor of light. Think of a camera lens. What does a camera lens do? It, it picks up light and light's absence, shadow, darkness, color, movement, things that the eyes can recognize. The eye consciousness picks up those differences and reports it to the mind, and we go, "Oh yeah, I recognize that. I see that. I see it." Hmm. I've seen that before. Wow! Come and take a look at this. I'll show you something you've never seen before. We say, 
And yet the eye itself is just a, an organ. It's just like a lens of a camera. In fact, it's precisely like a lens of the camera. Whatever we point our eyes at, that's what the mind sees. The mind distinguishes, we could say, through consciousness. Now, there's another kind of seeing, however, which the mind does entirely. It has nothing to do with the eye organ focusing like a lens on color or shape or, or movement or stillness or shade or absence of movement, color, shade, hue. It's seeing with the mind, contemplations. Now, some people may say, what in the world would that be? And I would propose dreams. Dreams are profoundly not contemplations, but it's seeing, right? It's experiencing that often has a visual component, but it has nothing to do with the eye because we're asleep. All right, so that's, I don't want to distract from contemplation. Contemplation is seeing with the mind. doesn't involve the eyes, but it's definitely a kind of seeing. Um, I remember uh, uh, a, a Tibetan lama who was originally French, talked about his training in the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism. And part of his mindfulness, his samadhi training, had him stare at, an, at a tanka, at an image of the Buddha, for hours and hours and hours. And he would stare at the Buddha's hand on a painting, sit in front of the, a painting, a tanka, a picture of the Buddha. That was, it's a religious object. It's an icon, right? It's not just a painting. And his job as a meditator was to observe, to stare at that hand only, just one portion of the whole painting, and get, the, get every aspect of it, the relationship, the places where there was no line on the, the canvas or the paper or the, the fabric, and just stare at it and look at it and look at it and look at it until he was able to see himself seeing, see the seeing looking at it. And then once he had spent months and months staring at the hand, he could move over to the Buddha's foot as he, the Buddha was sitting in full lotus. And he would look at that with eyes and mind until, you know, the line and the absence of line, the line and the, the space between the line was one. And then he would move on to the Buddha's head and like that. And, of course, it wasn't important what he was looking at so much. I mean, it's good that it's a Buddha image, it's pure. But it was more the training of the mind. First of all, patience, and then observing, and then going beyond the eye and observing to see the seeing itself. That was what it was all about. So it was a profound Buddhist kind of, of contemplation, a guan in Chinese. All of these ten things the Bodhisattva does here are guan. That's our verb every time. And it means to look, but look with the mind. So it took a while for this Lama to recognize that he was actually looking not only with his mind, but at his mind at the same time. And of course, that was the, that was the point of the exercise. Once he realized that seeing was an internal process to begin with, then he could move on. Then he'd learned his lesson. He didn't have to look further. And later on, he said that practice, he, he, as he went on to explain this, this practice, and he's a, a French Tibetan, originally a Frenchman, and a scientist as well. He said that uh, in this process, 
he uh, internalized something very special that was connected to the Buddha's image. And later, when it came time for him to uh, be able to uh, go out into the world and keep that samadhi, that stillness and purity of concentration, he could see all kinds of things that other people would find disgusting or terrifying. And by bringing back to mind this Buddhist, that the perfect perspective and balance and harmony of the Buddha's hand, he was able to hold his mind completely without affliction. He was able to, to find stillness anytime by uh, building on this, this uh, strength of observation that he had learned. Um, I'll, I'll tell you more about that later on tonight, but how that was applied, um, that ability to, to see one's own mind in the act of seeing and to, to step aside from objects of sight, from sights and seeing and the eye organ right in the midst of seeing. That's another story. So here's the bodhisattva doing this contemplating with the mind. How does that come into practice? Well, last week we talked about the contemplation of impurity. Remember how in the, uh, the Buddhist text called the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, the uh, bodhisattva in training or the meditator in training uh, gradually, gradually, gradually is introduced to the sight of a living thing decaying. In, in, in the case of the Visuddhimagga, I think it was a, what was it, a deer in the forest, or it might have been a rabbit or something that, was, that had died and was out in the forest. And it went through all the nine stages of decay, and the meditator's teacher took him gradually through, step by step, the process of watching, of contemplating this decaying corpse. And it went through every stage from swelling up, and, and I, I won't do it tonight. It's, it's pretty gross, pretty gruesome by our standard, uh, our, you know, by our standards of beauty. But it was very helpful because the meditator was able to patiently watch nature take its changes. And at the right point, the teacher said, and now, of course, you realize that you're contemplating your own body as well. And because the meditator had, had uh, done it sequentially and gently and lovingly, he was able to make that contemplation without being shocked, without flipping out or bringing forth aversion. And, uh, of course, as I introduced that, that story um, last time, I emphasized the part that, my big awareness, because when I first heard about the nine, the contemplation, the bu jing guan, the contemplations of the nine stages of a decaying corpse, I thought, ooh, that's cool, you know, because it's kind of sick and it's kind of gruesome, you know. And it was like the wrong part of me was interested in, like, watching something decay, you know. like a, And then I, and I thought, uh, is that really what it's about? And I'd heard about in Thailand how monks were taken into the morgue after a, an auto accident and, you know, shocked into the awareness of what's inside the body. It's not pretty. 
right? We spend so much time looking at the mirror and getting it just right, you know, and our hair and our makeup and all. And when you see what's inside, just this, immediately beneath the skin, it's a big shocker. And I was thinking, ooh, boy, that's really, you know, kind of kind of gruesome and scary and zombie-like, you know. And the same part that likes horror films kind of was appealing. And then when I read the Vasudhimaga, I realized that was totally, absolutely not where it was at. That's not the way it was done traditionally. Because why? Aversion is also an affliction. And if you, if you love the beauty of the body, well, you're only seeing the surface and you're not seeing the nature of the body. But if you are averse to it, if you look at the body and hate it and feel disgust and loathing for the body, the mind is also moving. So both attraction and aversion can lead to affliction, take you away from samadhi. So what does the Buddha, what does the, the teacher in the Vasudhimaga do instead? He takes the meditator step by step. So first of all, you identify uh, some organic body that some animal, usually, or bird that has died through some natural or unnatural cause. And you approach it bit by bit and it takes days to do it. And as soon as a thought of aversion or revulsion occurs in the mind of the meditator, that's the end of the class for the day. And you go, go away. You've learned today's lesson. And then the next day you go a step closer and you contemplate a minute longer. And the teacher observes the meditator's mind as he gets closer. And it's a very gradual, uh, connected process. You get bit by bit become familiar with the poor state of the creature that is now turned to bones, right? He's swelled up, he's broken open, his fluids have leaked, and, and uh, animals have come and devoured part of it and left. Then when his bones, it's like you realize, oh my goodness, this is a very natural, cyclical transformation of the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. And at a certain point, if you can keep the practice going until it turns to dust, until it really goes back, then the teacher says, very well, you have learned a great deal. Understand that you too are very much like this, identical, one body, tongti, dabe, same body, great compassion. And then it's a real, it's a powerful, compassionate lesson. But the process is watching the mind, realizing that attraction and aversion, dislike, move the mind out of samadhi equally. So what a wonderful lesson that was for me to realize it wasn't kinky and cool to see something dead, you know, like a horror film kind of thing, if, if that's, there are certain people who are attracted, but not at all. It's recognition of our humanity and the actual nature of the body. Temporarily put together, earth, air, fire, and water, will come apart and return. So that was helpful. That's called a contemplation. That's a Buddhist contemplation. Bu jing guan, the contemplation of impurity. There are other traditional contemplations that are used. There's a contemplation of compassion, contemplation of causes and conditions, the contemplation of the uh, the 
in the contents of the body that are done in morning chanting in the Theravada tradition in Pali. You go through the 36 parts of the body and just name them. And as you contemplate, you say, this is how it is. This is life as it really is. So the Bodhisattva has been making these contemplations. And each one is designed to shape the mind in a certain direction. Now, I want to say one more thing to recognize this. For those of you who have done meditation that is either vipassana, guan, right? Same thing, contemplation, vipassana, or shamatha, which is zhi, stopping, calming. Calming and contemplating is the fullness of cham, right? You watch the mind move, and as soon as the slightest thought arises, anything at all, you sweep it away. You ask, who is in there liking that? Who is in there hating that? Right? That's our familiar Chan, Zen style. Right? That's Shamata. That's the Jir part. Not a single speck of dust defiles the purity of the nature. Right? That's really different than contemplation, isn't it? Okay, so is that Vipassana? No, it's not Vipassana either. Vipassana is a different technique. You watch thoughts rise and fall. Contemplation here has to do with an object of meditation. It's a specific thing that the mind is looking at. Okay, so there's a difference here. There's stopping, which is our Chan style. Who is in there? Any thought that rises, you sweep it away. Right? You want to see the mind, understand the nature. Light up the mind and see the nature. Then there's contemplation, guan, which is vipassana, where you observe anger thoughts rise, anger thoughts decay, anger thoughts are gone. Here they come again. You watch them rise and fall. The dispassionate observer watches thoughts go. That is not contemplation the way the bodhisattva is doing it, but it's another third use of the mind. Okay? What is it like? The bodhisattva contemplates, he gains rebirth in the Buddha's household because he keeps a profound attitude that never retreats. Further, he fosters pure faith in the three jewels, the three gems that are never destroyed. That's where we got last week. So, non-retreating, never-quitting attitude to profound faith. Those are contemplations that are different from contemplating the way we do in Vipassana. How? Because there's an actual object of contemplation. Okay? This is mind training. Bodhisattva's training his mind, her mind. Okay, people come and you say, how do you meditate? What do I do? You're supposed to get rid of your thoughts, right? People say that. You're supposed to not, you like, hold your mind so you don't think anything. Right? People come in and say that. Good luck. You want to hold your mind so you don't think anything? 
you're setting yourself up for some major frustration because you're going to think a lot of things while you sit there. Okay, so that's not it. It's not that you hold your mind so you don't think anything. So what do you do when you sit there? Well, try counting your breath. Is counting your breath a contemplation? Absolutely it is. You watch your body inhale and exhale and inhale and exhale. And you observe, you count. There's much more to it than that, but that's, that's a kind of a contemplation, anapanasati. And then at a certain point, you catch all the tension in your body. You relax it, you release it. You contemplate relaxation and tension. And you relax your body as you sit. Then what do you do? Then at a certain point, you can start asking, who is mindful of the Buddha? Who is in there thinking all these thoughts? And you pursue it. This is a Chan style. Who? You ask who? Who's in there? Who's up so upset? Who's anticipating lunch? Who is afraid of leg pain? Who is in there? Right? Who thinks you're going to get enlightened in, before Saturday is over? You know, maybe before Sunday. Because after all, this retreat cost me 600 bucks. I'd better get enlightened. Right? Get my money's worth. Who is in there calculating for enlightenment? So that's the, the next one. At a certain point, somebody may say, Okay, we are now going to contemplate the body of the Buddha, Amitabha. Amitabha's body is the color of gold. The splendor of his hallmarks has no peer. His eyes are as wide as the four seas. His brow has got a white hair curl right here, and the light that shines from his, between his brows illuminates infinite numbers of worlds. Right? So asking you to contemplate the Buddha Amitabha, that has specific objects to contemplate. So that's a different kind of meditation. So you tell people that, and they go, gee, that's a lot. I'm just basically trying to get rid of my anger, you know, and you want me to contemplate the body of Amitabha. Let's do it. I'm in for it. I want to do it. Right? So there's lots of things to do when, you, when it comes time to meditate. Here the Bodhisattva has ten specific objects of contemplation. That's what he's doing here as he gains strength and vigor. Tonight we started with what? Started with Guan Zhu Heng Sheng Mie Gu. He contemplates the creation and destruction of all deeds, of all doing. Okay, let's look at it from the language point of view. Guan Here's our verb. He looks with his mind. She looks with her mind. Zhu, the many, plural, right? He contemplates hung. Hung here is activities. Now, it could be practices, specific practices, but I think here it's much more likely that it's things that people do, including himself, herself. He contemplates how all things that we do, and that's a big description, a big basket, all the things that we do from morning through noon 
tonight and sleeping. All those things, sheng mia, come into being and pass away. He looks at how everything doesn't stick around. Everything, everything is impermanent, transient, moving through. That's useful, right? That's a really useful contemplation. Um, I remember when bowing to the city of 10,000 Buddhas, my uh, monk companion at that time, Hung Chao, had a journal entry that uh, we were on a Friday afternoon bowing um, north of I guess it was south of Santa Barbara, not quite to Santa Barbara. And we met a a car of lay people who were taking us down to L.A. so we could spend Saturday and Sunday with the Venerable Master. And we we marked the place where we left the highway with a bunch of stones and a, a stick so we could find it on the way back. And it was right beside a uh, fairly steep cliff going down around Carpentaria, if people know where that is. Santa's Village. There's actually a place called Santa's Village. Or is it Christmas? Christmas Town? Christmas Land. It's a town year-round. So. And so we got in the car, went down, spent the, the weekend with the master, came back, and couldn't find our spot we couldn't find the spot where we'd stop because why? It had rained over the weekend and the spot was gone. It had washed into the ocean. The road had there'd been a landslide and it was a fairly substantial one and it had taken our bowing spot among other things. But Highway 1 was closed for a while and Marty in his journal had written, God, how impermanent the planet is including our bodies, including the mountains. Even the mountains come and go. How much the more do our human lives come and go? And there it was in front of us, just, man, where are we going to pick up? Because there's no, there's no road where we were bowing. You know, it just washed into the water, washed into the ocean. So how impermanent is, is everything? Here's the Bodhisattva looking at all Things that people do, sheng, come into being, mia, pass away. All things are born and die. All things are born and, yeah, that's right, grammatically. All things are born and all things die. They come and go, including us. And we do it over and over. That could be completely terrifying until you find a new footing in the impermanence of it. If we're clinging to it, it's not okay when it goes away. But it goes away. There's nothing that doesn't except empty space itself. And so what does a wise person do? Finds a way to balance in the flow. Why? 
What's our choice? What choice do we have? We have a choice to suffer when it goes away, which we almost always do. Or you look at someone with wisdom who says, you know, if I can let go of the need to have it stay the same, if I can let go of that, there is peace and stability in the midst of the instability. But it requires us to shift our view. It's hard to, because we're attached to everything. Our parents, our kids, our bodies, our iPads, right? our clothing, our teacups. I was showing off to a tea, a, a fellow tea fan this afternoon, somebody who likes really good tea. And we were going through the, I have some literature that I picked. I've been to a, the tea city in Beijing twice. And Cha Cheng in Beijing, it's, it's not just one place, it's a whole street. I've forgotten the name of the street in Beijing. Anybody remember? It's Tea Street. It's, what's it called? It's, it's in, it's one of the districts in Beijing. And there's like three blocks that are full of these tea, three-story tea malls, you know, tea department stores. And been there, and there are famous teapot makers who sign their teapots, you know. They're like, they make their famous pot. And they, they make, you know, one a day or something and turn them out. Well, I got a famous pot. I got a pot. It was so famous that there was a little booklet with the guy standing there. The artist is there with the finished pot, and he's got his little mug shot with his pot like that. And you buy it, and it, you know, and it's uh, it's got a little book describing where it came from and all his other works. And so I had one of those really famous pots, and and uh, uh, not that it was super expensive, but it was you know it was a handmade teapot, and I didn't for a while. There was a period of years when I kind of kept it in the box, you know, and wouldn't take it out very often because it was special, you know, and I didn't want ordinary people putting their fingerprints on this special teapot, you know. Or if I was feeling ordinary, I wouldn't use it that day, you know. And so then I thought, that's dumb. Just use it. Why not enjoy it? It's never going to... I've seen teapots that people love, and they have a kind of a sheen kind of glow, you know, because they've been fired so many times with the tea in them that they get a kind of a patina. It's very nice. And tea that comes out of those is really good. So I thought, come on, get that, put that teapot into circulation so we can use it. Well, secretly, it's in the drawer with all the other teapots, and nobody knew that that was the glowing teapot. So, you know, incognito, famous teapot. Well, you all know we remodeled the kitchen, right? Uh, yeah, we did. And we got river-washed granite countertops. They're hard. <laughs> Teapots are not. And I, one day I was using my famous teapot, and I had a few leaves in it, and I was, like, shaking the leaves out, and I forgot that it was a brand-new countertop, and I just caught the lip of the river-washed granite with my famous teapot, 
cracked in half, perfect two halves of my teapot, one in each hand. <laughs> and I couldn't blame anybody. It wasn't Chinwei's fault. <laughs> it wasn't Goshun's fault. It was, I did it, you know, and then... <laughs> famous teapot, both halves of it, you know. It's like, and it was a perfect split. I mean, it couldn't have been split more perfect right there. And, and I think... Dashing said, oh, no problem. We will super glue it together, he says. You know. So he's like, no, we're not going to super, you know, it's broken. No problem. So what a kind heart, you know. But you can't super, if you super glue it, then you put boiling, steaming hot water in it, it melts the super glue. Or it puts the super glue into the tea and you drink super glue, you know. So I have a, it's actually now it's, Two famous teapots, only one half of each. But, uh, you know, and today I was showing the tea friend my famous teapot book with a picture, you know, and it's no more. So I have it up on my desk where I'm writing, and I look at it and I go, impermanent, boy, oh boy. Zhu Heng, Guan Zhu Heng, Sheng Mie, Gu. Contemplate how all practices and all things are born and they die. That was the death of the teapot. Oh, my goodness. So, that's the way it is. And a teapot's a perfect example because it's empty inside. I mean, it's still a perfectly good teapot. You just can't use it to make tea anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's still there. It's just in two pieces. So, it loses its identity as a teapot. Now, it's two chunks of clay, fired and glazed. You know. Not the same. So all things, sheng mie, how all practices are born and they die. Guan zhu fa, zi xing wu sheng gu. Now we get deeper. These contemplations go deep. Look, guan, that's our friend, contemplate, looking with the mind. Zhu, there's the same word. All the many, plural. Fa, what's that word? You recognize fa is... Dharmas, right? Probably small d, probably here phenomena. Zi, xing, self nature, inherent nature, intrinsic nature, meaning the inside of it, right? Just at its essential place. Wu, not, sheng, same as the last one, not born. Don't get produced. Oh, try it again. And then gu, meaning it's how, kind of, because, literally, but it's that, you know, contemplates that. What? How the self-nature, the inherent nature of dharmas, doesn't come into being at all. And you go, wait a minute. How is that possible? Can we know that? Can we see that with our ordinary guan faculty, our contemplator? What in the world could it mean to say that you see how the intrinsic, inherent, basic nature of all things never comes, allowed, never comes around to begin with, is not born, doesn't, is not created at all? 
Well, what is the zixing of all dharmas? That's the question here. What is he talking about? The bodhisattva is here looking with his mind or her mind at how there is an internal place among all things that is not born. It doesn't come So it doesn't go either. If it's wusheng, it's also wumia. If the basic, the, the deepest part of all things is, doesn't have any birthday, doesn't have any date of creation, it also doesn't go away, doesn't die. So, okay, what, is, what are all dharmas? What's he talking about? So it's jufa, phenomena. The things that what? Let's, let's start with the basic ones. The things we can see are phenomena. Carnations, right here. What else? Things we hear, right? Sounds are phenomena. For example... Things that we taste right now because we're not eating, we don't have any specific taste. It's not salty, it's not sweet, bitter, sour, pungent, bland at this minute. What about smell? People say that the Buddha hall, when people come in from the street into the Buddha hall, they go, wow, it smells so nice in here. You know, I never notice because I'm surrounded by incense all day long. It's, that's the water we swim in, so we don't, I, don't, I don't smell it particularly. But that's a phenomena, is incense smell. Okay, what about sensation? Well, warm, when I sat down here, it was really warm in the Buddha hall. That's, that's rare, that's because the heater was on since 8.30 this morning. It's been pumping out warm air all day. Come back at uh, 10.30 tonight, and it'll be back to 40 degrees. So that's a phenomena. And there's the one that the mind knows, which is the most interesting. The phenomena of objects of mind, also called dharmas, right? But not the, the one that we're talking about here. So the bodhisattva kwan looks with her mind at how the deepest part, the fundamental essential part of everything that the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind can know is what? Wusheng doesn't come into being. Well, that's deep. What do you do with that? One thing that you can do is you think of science. You think of tele microscopes. You think of like looking, dividing it, dividing it, dividing it. You reduce it down to the tiniest and you look for something and you can't. You, know, you, can, put, you can weigh it. What is the essential, the, the zixing, what is the nature of a dharma weigh? Does it have a color? Does it have a velocity? Does it move quickly or is it stationary? 
So you can use scientific criteria to try to measure the svabhava, the inherent nature of dharmas. That's pretty frustrating. Because what are we talking about? Well, let's look at one that the mind connects with. How about joy? All right, joy is a dharma. You know when you're joyful. You know when you're not joyful. So what's the tzishing of joy? Something the mind knows. When you're joyful, your mind is, you know, light, ebullient, happy, buoyant, cheerful, all those words. You, there's a sign because you, you smile. There's a, a kind of a light that's given off when you're joyful. You, sometimes people say they jump for joy. Your body moves when you're joyful. So what is the tzishing of that? That's a, that's a dharma that we can know. What is the inherent nature of joy? So everything that I was describing are the, the outer characteristics of joy. That's kind of like the second step. It makes you jump. Jump for joy. Kids on Christmas morning. Right? Kids on their birthday. Dad, when he finally gets the keys to the BMW. Or the Prius. Right? For the first time. Wow. Neat. Jumping for joy. And what's the zixing of that? Well, we might look a long time, but we're going to be chasing our tails, trying to find the zixing of it, the svabhava, the, the inherent nature, the basic nature of it. So, okay, what do you do with this? Where, where do you go? Right? And can any, can any body really contemplate it? Or do you have to wait for the Buddha to, for, to tell us? That's one answer. You can say, the Buddha knows. Go to the sutras. Ask the sutras. What is the self, the inherent nature of joy? Okay, so what's the inherent nature of this piece of ceramic? Okay, here's a teacup lid. Well, it was clay, probably, at one point. And then it got fired, it got glazed, it got color, it got shape. And it came out like this hard thing, a ceramic teacup lid. But what's the, self, the inherent nature of it? Again, science might go down and they say, well, what are the elements? Sand, silica, right? It's probably a, a chemical component of silica. Anybody know offhand? Probably not, right? Got your periodic table on your phone. So what is it? You know, it's crystalline. Is there air in those molecules? That's one way to go is to like do a chemical analysis. But I don't think that's going to take you back to the tzishing of it. If I had to like tell you this minute what I really think, I would say that the self-nature of all dharmas is probably emptiness, shunyata, but nature does not let a vacuum stay empty. So as soon as you empty it out, it's filling. So the zixing part doesn't stay empty, but it's emptying. It comes back to emptiness, and then because of what 
does it take shape again? Karma. Because of behavior. It moves and suddenly it's got an identity, a chemical identity, a, you know, sand or joy or feathers or water, you know, all the things, the 10,000 things arise from that same place. So that's, you know, but for me, I don't see it, so I'm, I'm just, that's my best guess. The inherent nature of all things is emptiness. Emptiness is wusheng, not produced. It's not born. Okay, Ajahn Guna, I'm going to put you on the spot. Self-nature of all dharmas. Speak into the microphone. <laughs> if the Bodhisattva is contemplating the self-nature of all dharmas, how it is wusheng, and somebody said, give me your best shot at what is the self-nature of all dharmas. Would you have a, a soundbite to contribute? What does the Abhidharma tell us is the self-nature of all dharmas? All the self-nature of all things is that they are anicca, dukkha, and anatta. The self-nature, the inherent, and notice I go back and forth between these words, self-nature, inherent nature, intrinsic nature, of all dharmas is three. It is the seal, they call it the three seals of dharmas. We were talking about that on the third ground. Not self, transient, and ultimately unsatisfying. Ku kong wu wo. Wu chan. Right? Ku meaning unsatisfying. Wu wo, no self. And wu chang, don't last. Great. That's, that's exactly what we were looking for. Okay, that is the self nature. And, and, the last two words, wusheng, those things, too, are not born. They don't come about, and yet we can still experience them. That's amazing. That's amazing. Where is suffering? Where is ku, dukkha? Say it's wherever those conditions arise. Grab it. Can you hold it? No. It's, it too doesn't last. It's not produced. It's there when conditions arise. So the Mahayana says, true emptiness is not different than wonderful existence. Wonderful existence itself is just the flip side of true emptiness. Right? Zhen Kong Miao Yu. They're the same thing, but flipped. Okay. Deep, huh? This is really deep. The Bodhisattva is watching this. Not grasping it, not loving it, not hating it, but Guan, he's observing with his mind how all these things, fundamentally, they don't have any place where joy and its absence stop or can be identified or stopped. You can't stop them. 
grab them, hold on to them. You also can't make them arise when you want them. And yet, show a place where there's no dukkha, where there's no impermanence. That's how wonderful the Buddha Dharma is. All right, let's move on here. Complicated and yet so satisfying because when we hold our minds in this place, there's wisdom, there's insight. Okay, next one. Guan shi jian cheng huai gu. Contemplates, shi jian is worlds coming into being, cheng huai, going out of existence. The next thing he contemplates are not dharmas, but the world. Worlds, plural. He looks at how worlds cheng huai come into being and go away. All right? I would hold up that same story watching how Highway 1 comes into being and goes away, slides down the hill on a weekend. Right? It was there on Friday. We came back on Monday morning. It was not there anymore. Wow. Just like that. What else? What kind of worlds? Step on an anthill. And for the ants, their world came into being and went away. It's like that. I watched these uh, in Australia. They have these amazing spiders that build these six feet, six foot webs. And uh, in a matter of minutes, 90 minutes to build this huge web. And it's a large spider and it is really moving fast to get this web built. I mean, he's doing, taking perfect right angle turns and then leaving a trail and then connecting it here. And when he's done, it's this perfect architectural structure. And then a large moth flies through it and rips it to shreds. Big moths in Australia, right? They come in and they, they're struggling because they're, they know the spider is going to jump on them in a second. So the moth, depending on its size, can rip down, rip right through the web. And the spider does what? He rebuilds his world. Just does it. That big. And you realize that these spiders have been doing this for millions of years. They are a direct link with prehistory, with before humans came. They've been doing it forever, mostly in the dark. They don't see very well. Their other senses are keen. But their sight is not so good. And daylight, night's the same. They just build that web and wait for something to fly into it. This is ancient stuff, right? So these worlds come into being. And there's six months out of the year when the spiders are totally gone because they've crawled down to the ground and buried themselves and gone into hibernation. And when the weather warms up, they're back. As they have been ever and forever and we humans are like, we're just an eye blink, you know, in that process. Australia is full of things like that, that just you just feel somehow that you are a footnote in this long historical play that's been going on. And you, the sunlight has it, and the plants have it, and the wallabies have it, and the kookaburros. They're just these ancient players on the stage of, of history, and humans are an afterthought. Right. We're not the story down there. 
All right, how worlds come into being. Next one. Guan Yin Ye Yo Sheng Gu. Look at it word by word. Contemplates, same one. Yin, because of. Ye, karma. Yo, have, exist. Sheng Gu. Contemplates how things because of karma come into being. Looking at how things that we do make things happen. If there's no doing, nothing happens. Does that sound trite? Does that sound too simple? Sherfa would say, just at the right time, in a Chan session, we'd be sitting there waiting the pain out, waiting the burning in our knees, you know, just like, I can't stand another minute of this. I bet the Wayno's fallen asleep. Hey, wake him up. No, it's me. It's not yet. Oh, as soon as your mind moves, your legs burn even more, right? And you're sitting there being patient, oh, with this horrible knee pain. And then Shurfu would come down and say, Xin Dong. One shi yo no Xin Dong Bai Shi Sheng Xin Mie Wan Wu Wan Shi Wu How did it go? I get it wrong. He'd scold me for getting it wrong. I shouldn't try to do it in Chinese. He would say, As soon as the mind moves, the hundred things come into being. As soon as the mind is still, all ten thousand things cease to be. Right? So it's the moving of the mind that makes everything come into being. Karma. And you'd be sitting there thinking, yeah, Shrifu, I really appreciate that, but would you tell him to ring the bell because my knees hurt? You know, oh. So yeah, as soon as the mind moves, all 10,000 things in creation arise because of the mind. But if your mind can be still and quiet... There's a space where you step out of that busy, busy, busy creation and destruction of things. So he contemplates how things exist only because of the doing that we do. As soon as we stop doing, things stop to be. Orla. <laughs> your your mind is is very uh, active in the middle of that, and um, as as I was hearing you describe it, I was picking up. Your question was, "Isn't it true that you know?" Which which tells me right away that you you're trying to hold a picture of how it must be, right? And the quick answer is. I don't know. I wish I did. And I wouldn't try to fool you to say I do know how it is and confirm that what you think it is is the way I see it too. So one answer would be, might be, but 
I heard a bunch of, like at least three, you know, isn't it going to be that way? And so I can conjecture in there with you the best, you know, I'll, my picture of it is a little different of what it must be like. And um, I know that we get there by reduction. It's not that you get anything when you're, quote, enlightened. It's that you let everything go. And the amazing thing that if you look at the sixth patriarch, he, when he actually wakes up, right, the fifth, there's a story in the beginning of the sixth patriarch sutra where the fifth patriarch wakes him up. He says the right thing. Now, the sixth patriarch, Huinang, who was just a layman at the time, did the work, mind you. His, he was ready and he woke up. He heard the Diamond Sutra being recited. But the fifth patriarch confirmed that he was and then gave his mind a shape. And the sixth patriarch was, his, his, his statement was, how amazing, who knew, basically, who knew that all 10,000 things fundamentally don't exist? And who knew that all 10,000 things are all totally connected, like you say? That's his, and he goes on, there's like about five or six who knews, you know. You get to see the world through his eyes. So we can, you and I can borrow the six patriarchs, you know, statement of how it is, because I, I don't know. So what he said was that the self-nature of all things is already awake. And what I understand is when you get back to that place by reduction, you strip off the fear, you strip off the pride, you strip off the doubts, you strip off the greed to make it want to be different than it is, you strip off the, the grasping and all the ideas, you know, all that stuff, it doesn't rule you anymore. You pull it off layer by layer. And at that point, it's not when you finally get back to the actual emptiness of the nature of all things, it's not that there's nothing, but the way it really is suddenly is revealed. And the way it is, is way beyond my movie or your movie. It's this incredible functioning everywhere. And so that's, that's this amazing part about the interplay between wisdom and compassion. People think, wow, wisdom, you know, it's really empty, right? Well, it has to be, but what's empty is the self, the me that wants to grab it, wants it one way or the other way. When you really, really, really empty it all out, what you see is karma is everywhere and we're connected to everybody and everybody's out there doing their bit. Some people are getting drunk. Other people are building empires. Other people are shooting children. Other people are giving birth to children, you know, all at once. Here are the animals, here are the ghosts, here are the gods, all doing their karmic trips all at once. And you're totally knit into the whole thing. I think that's what it is. So when it's really empty, suddenly it's totally full without you doing anything to make it one way or the other. It's happening right now, but because I think I'm special and different and because I got my senses in here working, so I'm broken off from it. You know, if you were enlightened right this minute, you would see that like you, 
you're, you're, you're everything. You don't have to do a thing, and you're already everything. It's because we think we have to get in there. You said, I want to try to get enlightened. You know, It's exactly the trying that keeps us cut off, which is so dumb because nobody thinks that. You think, well, I've got to get enlightened. I've got to boogie. You know? And it's the boogieing that gets us in trouble. So, Yeah. It does, but the difference is that he or she has been cultivating. Because it's not the case that all activity is the same. For example, meditation, when you're using the Dharma, when you're in the Dharma mold, takes you back into the form of an an awakened being, a sage, a Buddha, a Bodhisattva, an Arhat. Not all practice, like, you know, chugging a six-pack every night will not take you there, you know. So, yeah, we are all connected and everything is the same, but there are some practices that are really wholesome for you and for everybody. Bowing, you know, all of the, the Buddha Dharma practices. And it took the Buddha himself six years to discover that. He worked on, he, they say that he mastered every single yogi practice out in the woods, you know, he was out there, and the woods were full of yogis doing all their different things. And he tried a bunch and rejected them, hanging by your heels from a tree limb, you know, standing on one foot, sleeping on a bed of nails, walking on fire, starving yourself. He went through all of them and said, that's not it. That's not going to take me back. So if all practices were the same, any one of those could have woken him up. But he, like, went through them all, you know. So that's why we we do this instead of, shooting children as a door to enlightenment, you know. So, good question. Okay, we have three, four more to go. Let's do it before we finish here. Guan sheng si nia pan gu. What does he do? He contemplates samsara and nirvana. That's interesting. Okay, he looks at Birth and death, the the ceaseless rounds of coming into being, passing away that we do, and he also looks at the ending of that. I told you my favorite illustration of Nirvana. It was a Houston Smith movie. Remember that story I told you? Houston Smith had a a movie called Requiem for a Faith. Our very same Houston Smith, our local sage. He made a movie about Tibetan Buddhism. I was a freshman in college. Boy, this is 1967. And I knew absolutely nothing about Tibetan Buddhism or, or most Buddhism of any kind. And uh, so in this movie, he was describing birth and death and nirvana. And he had a row of candles. Candle, 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 candle. And somehow he managed to make it so that the flame of this candle jumped to the next candle. This one was not lit, and then the flame jumped, and it was lit. And then the flame jumped, and this was lit. And he said, and a constant round of birth and death keeps us in the path of birth, old age, sickness, and death, 
rebirth, old age, sickness, death, rebirth, and all the suffering and joy of each rebirth in ignorance. This is samsara. He said, and then finally, the Buddha, through diligent cultivation in the flame, reached the last of his incarnations, and he realized nirvana. He goes, Smoke. The last candle, you know. It's like, so that's my image for nirvana, you know, the last of blowing out of the flame. It's like a perfect illustration. Because nirvana is, you know, it means cessation, cessation of no further coming into being. So nirvana, no more coming. So birth and death and nirvana. Guan Chung Sheng Guo Tu Guo Tu Guo Tu Two ways to say it. Guan Chung Sheng Guo Tu Ye Gu. Contemplates. There's our our verb. That's the engine that pulls the train along the track. The verb moves the sentence. Chung Sheng Living Beings. Guo Tu Guo Tu Countries. Ye Karma. Contemplates the karma of the countries the living beings build. Not worlds, right? Not actions, but countries. In other words, nations, the nations of living beings, the cultures, the races. What is the culture? What is the what do beings make? We'll come back to that a little later. Because tonight, after yesterday, we have a familiar, painful contemplation in that regard for our particular country. Okay, the next two are related. Guan Qian Ji Ho Ji I'm sorry, I'm sorry, my, my mistake. Nine and ten are separate. This one has two. Guan Qian Ji Ho Ji Gu. He contemplates former limits, boundary, latter Boundary limits. So Qian is in front, former, earlier, Qi. Like, just think of a, you know, like a border, like the, the border between U.S. and Canada, or a fence. Ho, the last, the later limit, border. So it contemplates the borders of before and the borders of afterwards. This is hard to translate. Simple words, hard to get a sense. So he contemplates the limits of what came before, the past, and the limits of whole, what comes after. Future, Future, you would think, yeah. Could it be that? And it's easy to translate that. That may not be what it means. That's why we didn't translate it as future, past and future. It says, contemplates early limits, later limits. Difficult. It's, we don't want to think, you know, it's past and future. Yeah, could be. What is that, though? Contemplates the limits of the past, limits of the future. Well, talking about time, things that came before, things that come after. So, lunch. And tomorrow's breakfast, last night's sleep and tonight's sleep, you know, what does it mean? What is, how does it work? 
Interesting. So he's contemplating. He's using his mind to look at the limits, the edges. Does the past have an edge when it becomes now? Does now have an edge when it becomes future? Where is it? How do you measure it? When does it start? When does it stop? So there's no quick answer to that. But you go on, you contemplate. And you look at the continuity of time. And, you know, what are these things that we live our lives by? Our wristwatches. Boy, they're important. The Japanese run trains on time. The Germans run trains on time. That train is not late. Better be on it when it leaves the station, because it's going to go when it says it will. Okay? Not like American Airlines. Never mind. Okay, Guan Wu Soyo Jin, the last one. He contemplates Wu Soyo Jin without that which exists totally, ultimately. What is this? Jin, the infinite, the ultimate, the total, the absolute, Wu Soyo doesn't exist, not existing, without which exists, contemplates what the end of what exists, of what does not exist. Wu Soyo Jin, the ending of what does not exist. In other words, what comes back into being. What has no end. What would that be? Okay. So these are deep contemplations. This is deep stuff. The Bodhisattva is looking deeply, getting ready for the fourth ground. Virya paramita, the perfection of strength. So this is really good mental strengthening. These are kind of like exercises for strengthening the mind. This bodhisattva needs strength. Why? He, she is going to take beings across. He has big job. He has contracted with lots of living beings to bring them to awakening. So he needs strong mind. By contemplating these things according to Dharma, he gets ready to expand the measure of his mind to include all the things that he's going to deal with. Suppose you had to sort out the karma of someone who had just murdered school children and principals and teachers. Do you forgive them? Is that perfectly natural? Because those kids had it coming. No mistakes in karma, you know. Ooh, how do you sort that one out? What is that person? How, how many lifetimes does it take to pay that back? Who were those kids? Who was that young man? Who was his mother? What did he owe his mother that he killed her first? What is the compl- complicated karmic ties 
that we saw the last, by the time it gets to your body actually going through the behavior, it's way at the end because the causes of those connections are very old and deep. You know, what would that be? The Bodhisattva is going to see that kind of story portrayed over and over. Can you imagine what it's like in the hills? In the back, Tao. Say it again. How do you know the difference between creating karma and... Got it. Got it. Yeah. I think about that a lot. And earlier, I had said, I said tonight before I came in, the first one here, the Bodhisattva contemplates the creation and destruction of all deeds. This is the third contemplation tonight. I said that... Um, Gong Fu, or skill, is being able to see how everything, everything is transient, and you learn to find balance and peace of mind in that new reality. That's the only actual choice we have. But most of us can't do that, so we cling. We cling to stuff, it breaks up anyway, and we lose our balance and fall, and we suffer, and we climb back up again. Someone with wisdom about how it really is sees how nothing lasts and somehow is able to, you know, with the pole, find your balance on that tightrope of emptiness. And if you can, it's liberating. If you can't, you suffer. And... We do. We suffer. Because it's really, really hard to let go of stuff. And yet, everything around us doesn't last. So, the question. Your, your question is really specific. You say, you know, uh, how does the phrase go? What we do... Let's see. What we are, what we are is what we have done. What we do, we will become. Right? Right this minute, we are receiving the results of everything we did. Right this minute, we are doing the future to come. So your question is, where's the boundary, right? Where do you do that? Well, you'd have to say, in the next thought. Why? Why that answer? Because if you can take your mind through meditation to a place of samadhi, to a place of concentration that is still and pure, and you can catch the arising of thoughts, which are the actual seed of karma. And you can, I just quoted Shurfu in the Chan sessions, he would say, as soon as the mind moves, all 10,000 things come into being. If you can stop your thoughts, the entire universe comes to rest. So, the, the boundary of that, what we did is what we are, what we do is what we will become. The boundary of that is, is in your next thought. And if you can, you know, of course we can't because we're in the midst of processing 
sight, sound, smells, taste, sensation, the touch, and dharmas all the time. And then we add to it desires, fears, attachments. So it's really hard to catch that subtle thought when it moves. But if you're quiet and you listen, still, you can actually get to that place where thoughts, you, can, you don't see them stopping. You notice when they start again. Right? You don't say, oh, my thoughts have stopped. Not that's a thought moving, right? But when they move again after you stilled them, you go, right, I caught you. And so the Buddha says, oh, house builder, I see you at last. You will build no house anymore. Your ridgepole shatters. Your rafters all fall down. My mind realizes the unborn, and craving comes to an end. Craving is the builder of this house. Right? That's the Buddha's liberation. He saw that thoughts actually can stop. That's the third noble truth. Suffering can come to an end. And that's the border. And as soon as your thoughts move, you've planted the next one and your future is certain. Okay? So sit still and you'll answer that one for yourself. Okie doke. Yeah. You got are emptiness and not self-related. Yes, they're cousins. Um, So, uh, emptiness is the self-nature of all things until it fills up again. Think of a vacuum. Vacuums suck stuff in. So, you will not get to no self until you actually embody emptiness. But... um, it's the, uh, there are levels of not-self, right? And the self, because it's such a fluid, changing construct, it's made of body, feelings, thoughts, formations, and consciousness. And then you add to it karma. And so it took the Buddha, the prince, with all his blessings, six years to work on that. And, yeah... When you empty, it's, think of it as a verb. It's not empty like a state, it's emptying. So you're always emptying out that attachment, that desire, that affliction, that ignorance. It's an ongoing verb process. It's emptying, it's not empty. Okay, and what you're emptying out is the self. All right, by golly, uh, we're over. I brought down my amplifier because it was going to make this guitar sound so nice Um, but I'll have to do it next week so we get to hear it on the mic instead and then next week we'll make it sound so nice let's transfer the merit
All right. Um, people are certainly free to transfer merit wherever you would care to do so. And I can certainly think of a place that could use that merit. Could everybody turn in your songbook, please, to page 80. earth Let's see I'll do it without a guitar the Tao gave us earth water metal wood and fire the human mind belongs to earth its thoughts produce desire desire goes unsatisfied a thought of anger grows anger turns to hatred and people come to blows Fist to club and club to sword, sword to arrow, arrow to gun. Bullet to bomb and bombs to missiles, a thought of hate in the mind of man. Now these names are Adam and Simon, but it could be Zhang San and Li Si. 
right? Or it could be Susie and Tammy or Nathan and John, right? Adam starts a ruckus. He knocks Simon down. Weapons of earth, fists and feet, and the war goes on. Simon swings a club and Adam's on the ground. Wooden weapons, clubs and staffs, and the war goes on. Arrows tipped with flint and swords made of steel. Metal weapons pierce through wood, and the war goes on. Adam pulls a trigger and pierces Simon's shield. Fire weapons, guns and cannon, and the war goes on. Terror made from water, chemistry at war. Water weapons, atom bombs, and the world stops here. Children scream, weapons fly, elders tremble, widows cry. Where does all the killing end? Just a thought, you decide. Water to fire and fire to metal, metal to wood and wood to hand. Earth is where the trouble ends, a thought of peace in the mind of man. Not so much in the mind of women. Who can stop the death parade? Souls who vow to end the fight. Hands that heal and hands that give. Hearts that fill with Buddha's light. Who can stop the death parade? Heal your mind in the fight. Drop the weapon, join your hands. Fill your heart with Buddha's light. So this is Shurfu's analogy of the uh, progress through the technology of weapons. So the Tao gives us five elements. The human mind is part of earth, and the thoughts that come out of it produce desire. Desire goes unsatisfied, and then anger arises, right? Greed, anger, delusion. Anger turns to hatred. People come to blows because you're just frustrated. And then fist to club, club to sword, sword to arrow, arrow to gun, bullet to bomb, bombs to missiles. The progress of technology through weapons. And it's a thought of hate in the mind of man that sets it all moving. Okay, for example... Zhang San starts a problem. Li Si gets knocked down. That's what? That's the weapons of earth, fists and feet, right? The war goes on. Now we've started it. Karma. Retribution. Simon comes back. He's going to knock down Adam, but he uses a club. So weapons technology has now progressed. Adam's on the ground. Wooden weapons. Clubs and staffs. And the war goes on. Now, Simon's got to get back, or Adam's got to get back. What does he do? He comes back with weapons of metal. Arrows tipped with flint, swords made of steel, metal weapons pierced through wood, and the war goes on. Simon had a club, but now his club is useless because Adam's got metal weapons. Technology progresses. Adam goes, uses metal weapons progressively. He pulls a trigger 
it hits a, a bullet, there's a spark, the powder explodes, this lead projectile comes shooting out a barrel, pulls a trigger, pierces the metal shield of Simon, fire weapons, guns and cannon, and the war goes on. Okay, well, that's not the end. So we have earth, wood, metal, fire, there's one more, terror made from water, chemistry at war, water weapons, atom bombs, and the world stops here. Yesterday it was bullets going through six- and seven-year-old bodies, right? And as soon as this hatred progresses, takes the next step, we have chemical weapons, hydrogen bombs, atom bombs, chemical bombs, right? Gas, etc. Um, bombs made of disease, right? Anthrax, etc. And that's the end of the world. Sherpa says we've done it many, many times over. He said that's what we always do. We always outsmart ourselves with weapons technology. Children scream, weapons fly, elders tremble, widows cry. Where does all the killing end? Just a thought in the end. Water to fire, fire to metal. Metal to water, wood to hand. Take it back. Take the water. Water puts fire out. Fire melts metal. Metal cuts wood. Wood digs the earth. Take it back. Earth is where the trouble ends. Why? It's one thought of peace in your mind. So trace it back. Take it all the way back. Who can stop the death parade? There will be endless talks about how we are in a culture of violence. See if anything changes. Souls who vow to end the fight. Hands that heal, hands that give. Hearts that fill with Buddha's light. Who can stop the death parade? Undisarm my mind. End the fight. Drop the weapon, join your hands, fill your heart with Buddha's light. Turn the page over here. This is when it gets really, really, really ugly, when religions get into it. Had a dream the other night, Namo Amitabha. What I saw gave me a fright. Take me to the pure land. The kings of death were on parade. Namo Amitabha. Followed by the ghosts they made. Take me to the pure land. Their bones were white as ocean gulls. Namo Amitabha. Their crowns were set on eyeless skulls. Take me to the pure land. We fought for God as we were told, Namo Amitabha. Whoops. The king said, fight for God and land, Namo Amitabha. Put a weapon in my hand, take me to the pure land. We fought for God as we were told, Namo Amitabha. How useless now, my bones are cold. Take me to the pure land. 
Mass destruction, be afraid. Namo Amitabha. Follow in the death parade. Take me to the pure land. God said killing is a sin. Namo Amitabha. Men go wrong with religion. Take me to the pure land. Of all the um, 61 murders of more than four people that we've had in the last several years, you can't find one where a woman pulled the trigger. What does that say? Exactly. Yeah, we go wrong. And, I might add, with very few exceptions, it's white men. Very few exceptions in this country. American white men. Used to be older guys, now it's young guys. The Virginia Tech killings was, was a Korean-American, and there was a factory killing in New York State with a Vietnamese-American. But by and large, it's white men. We have a problem. Big problem. Think about the killings. Think about where they happened. When you go through the list, it's scary. So, um, honestly, I don't think much will happen because I've seen the cycle. What would have happened if yesterday's shooter had been Islamic? Yeah, yeah. A lot of Muslims would be dead today. What if he had been black? President Obama would need to double his bodyguard. So, because it's white, some kid uh who took his mother's guns, shot her first, and then got in a car and walked into two elementary classrooms and mowed down eight-year-olds with pistols that fire a hundred bullets in a matter of seconds, right? Um, So what do we say? We say, oh, he made bad choices. Let's have a national conversation. How could such a thing have happened? Pray to God that it won't happen again. That's not going to help. There's something wrong with white men in America. 
that makes this possible for us to value our metal, in some cases glocks or plastic, projectile shooters so that when something frustrates us, we take life. There's something ill. That's an illness. It's a social disease that makes that possible. That life is not valuable. We're sick. And nothing will change until we're sick of being sick. So I find in Buddha Dharma something that addresses the root of the sickness. And I think we need to talk about this, not that anybody's necessarily going to listen because we love our guns too much. Freedom to do any damn thing I want to, including taking life, is more valuable in our national discourse now, that's part of our illness, than life. So one thing that I think we could do that would move us in the right direction is kill fewer creatures for food. It is connected. And the billions of creatures that die for our dinner numb us to death. We can thrive on a plant-based diet that doesn't involve smashing life out of something that prefers to live. That's key. That's really important. We live in a world where killing is essential to our is is some part of our everyday only we call it food it's not different right it's the same kill an animal kill a child show me the difference in terms of suffering two i think american white men need to find their fathers and take a walk with them. They need to ask them to tell me what is right and what is wrong. And don't let them go until they tell us. Listen when they tell us. If I was the dad and my kid, no matter how far I was from thinking about the, said, Dad, tell me what's right. You need to tell me, because I need to know. I would think about it. And if Dad can't tell us, don't let him go till he does. I think we need to see hate thoughts in our minds as taboo. We don't. We call hate competitive. We call, we practice hate in sports every day. Soccer, football, the marketplace, it's okay to hate. We have to be taught 
to hate. Kids don't hate naturally. We teach kids to hate. It's how we live. We put it on our TV and call it entertainment. We put it in our video games and call it cool. It leads to destruction of life, and that is an illness. I think white men need to practice peaceful movement of the body. Because... It used to be, before guns came along, that you couldn't kill unless you were stronger and faster than other men. Because you, if you come up with your fist to, to knock somebody down, they have an equal chance to defend themselves or knock you down. You better be faster or stronger or you might get knocked down. Right? Now, all you have to do is do that. And you can kill without ever getting, can't even smell the person you're killing. If this kid who had issues had to actually choke the life out of 20 children, he probably wouldn't have done one. But because he could go, so they all died. And he then killed himself. If he had to go actually throttle them, those kids could have run. They could have kicked him. They might have bit him. He would have been hurt. But until he killed himself, he didn't hurt. He couldn't feel anything, they say. So that's an illness, right? And if we move our bodies, we come into our bodies. Tai Chi, yoga, qigong, jogging gives us our bodies and we feel things I think this should be part of the healing sitting with the mouse in the chair watching the shooting killing on the screen numbs us to the body I think that's key learn harmless communication we don't know how to talk. We don't know how to listen. We're numb to it. And I think really key is somehow we need to learn to show appreciation to our mothers and our sisters. White men. Not alone in that one. I think black men need to learn the difference between mother and a hoe. But white men are not in the habit of showing appreciation to mothers and sisters. How could rape exist if we did? So that's my plan. And those are things I can do I don't have to wait for a discussion. I don't have to wait for a bill to be passed or for money to be appropriated. I don't have to wait for a national conversation to make me feel better about this kid who was taught to hate and destroy. 
Who taught him it was okay to destroy? We did. I did. By not teaching him anything different. But that's what he knew, and he was good at it. He did a really good job of ending the lives of children. Strange children. All right? So, I think, cherish life. Learn ahimsa. No harm. As basic. And model it. Hold on, I'm, I'm not done. So, show. Don't tell. Show. Cherishing life. Teach that as the first lesson. Connect it to your parents. Eat harmlessly. Make hate not okay. Don't make hate good. In the marketplace, on TV, in the football stadium, don't kick butt. What's the difference between kicking butt and pulling a trigger? Not much. Practice peaceful movement. Learn to communicate harmlessly and show appreciation to the female women in your lives. Anyway, sorry, but that's my policy. Yeah, but that's not that's not unique to white Americans. That's worldwide. I'm I'm focusing on what I know. Yeah, but you're right. Okay, so I vented, but um, I don't want to have a national conversation about what went wrong. I know what went wrong. 